The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Tonight, we got fun things on deck, and it first starts off by needing to introduce our one and only Annie Hund. How nice looking pants, Annie. Yeah, look at that. You look pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Annie, what's going on? What's, what's going on tonight? We're here at the end. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So, Annie, tell us a little bit about yourself first before we dig into what's going on tonight. My name is Annie Laurie Hund. Annie Laurie is actually my first name. Fun fact. I hail from Snohomish, Washington. Anybody? My parents are like, yeah. Um, and I am a senior at SPU. And yeah. And then I am a student intern here at the Inn. And sometimes you see me leading worship. And yeah. Sweet. Okay, so Annie and the rest of the student interns for spring quarter have got an opportunity to dig into some stories on the Old Testament. And Annie's been tasked to dig into the story of Ruth, and she spent the last couple weeks like, immersing herself in the story, knowing all that Ruth thinks and the rest of the story, or people in the story. And it's, um, tonight's just going to be awesome as she gets to kind of share her findings and her what she's processed in this time. And so she's going to start us out tonight. And then I'm going to come up and follow after her. But Annie, why don't you open us up tonight in prayer? Awesome. Okay. Jesus, thank you so much that you're here and that you're with us, God. I pray tonight that you just um, calm any of my nerves, any of Becca's nerves, God, uh, that you just speak through us, um, that your word, God, is truth, and we thank you for that. And I just thank you that you love us so well. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Have you ever known somebody or had a friend that just never leaves your side? This person is with you through thick and thin. They're probably your BFF or your ride or die, uh, but you just know that they are loyal to the end. This is what I've come to observe about Ruth in the Bible. The story of Ruth begins with a woman named Naomi. Naomi and her husband and their two sons live in Bethlehem, but because of a famine happening in Israel, they have to leave. So they travel to the land of Moab, which at the time was exceptionally more rich and fertile. So they traveled about 60 miles, which is about a two-day journey, and they made the trip all barefoot. I think there might be, yeah, ooh, fancy map. Um, yeah, so they had to go around the Dead Sea. It was a two-day journey. It was long. Um, and then scripture doesn't say exactly when, but shortly upon arrival, Naomi's husband dies. So can you imagine moving to a foreign land where you're already uncomfortable and everything is new and then boom, you lose your spouse. Her two sons then marry two Moabite women named Ruth, hey yo, that's our girl, and Oprah. Oh, ah, Orpah. <laughs> I knew this was going to happen. Her name's Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah. Oprah was not alive in biblical times. <laughs> You're welcome for that incredible insight. Um, wow. All right. Orpah. So, <laughs> and then it says that 10 years later, 
both of Naomi's sons die, leaving her obviously in great distress and only with her two daughters-in-law. So Naomi decides to return back home to Bethlehem, but she urges her daughters-in-law to stay. We're going to look at Ruth 1, 8 through 9. Naomi says, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. You can hear the anguish in her voice. She's saying, you've been so good to me and to my sons, but just go home and be blessed. So they have this big emotional moment and Naomi is basically saying, you know what, let's just go back to our spots like nothing ever happened. Both Orpah and Ruth protested and they said, no, we're coming with you. Then Naomi really made them consider the cost for staying with her. In Ruth 1, 11 through 14, Naomi says, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back my daughters, go your way for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, implying that she left, but it says that Ruth clung to her. Orpah simply decided that there were more important things than staying with her mother-in-law. She loved her mother-in-law, but not enough to sacrifice other things for her. So why is it that Ruth stayed? In Ruth 1, 16 through 18, she says, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth is making a sacrificial declaration. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. This is wild given the cultural context of that day. Naomi is Jewish and Ruth is from an entirely different ethnicity. Yet she puts herself in Naomi's shoes. What I want you to hear about Ruth tonight is that she unifies, is sacrificial, and she loves radically. Think about the situation that they're in for a second. The air was heavy. They were in mourning. Naomi lost the only bloodline that she had left. She probably didn't want to go to Moab in the first place. She probably didn't want her sons to marry foreigners. Naomi is most likely hard to be around right now. She's stricken with grief. She's deep in pain and she's bitter. But Ruth loves Naomi radically. When we ask, what is love? What comes to mind? Baby, don't hurt me. I thought more people were going to join along. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but the biblical foundation of love is found in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient. Ruth is extremely patient with Naomi. Love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud, it is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. Ruth doesn't hold anything against Naomi. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always hopes, always perseveres. That's the character of God. God is love. 
He doesn't keep record of wrongs. He is patient. He is kind. And this is profoundly exemplified in Ruth. I don't know about you, but I want to be more like Ruth. Loving people on their birthday is really easy, right? I mean, it's likely that person is having a really good day. Maybe it's even the best day of their year. And you're part of that, right? You're getting them cupcakes. You're posting on their Facebook while you're singing jolly, happy songs. Um, but not every day is someone's birthday, right? That's pretty obvious. <laughs> but not every day is someone's best day. This is not Naomi's best day. She's just gone through hell and back. So how do we love people when it's not their birthday or rather it's not their best day? I have a hard time with this. I recently realized that I often unconsciously have bitterness in my heart towards people that aren't super easy to love. I have an older brother who has gotten into hard drugs and that has led to a lot of things that have caused my family a lot of pain. Growing up, it was hard to love him when he came home high as a kite and a little whacked out and he was stressing out my parents. It was hard to love him when he was yelling at me because he was angry with the world. It's been a process learning how to love him well and I realized that I said I loved him but I wasn't always showing it. To be honest, I felt like I couldn't really get up here tonight without at least trying to act out what I've been learning through Ruth, without trying to actively reconcile this relationship with my brother that I've kind of just put on the wayside for a really long time. So last week I met up with him and it was a little awkward because we don't always talk about feelings together. We don't always have moments like this, but I just said, hey, I love you. I care about you. I want to know what's going on in your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, and I'm here for you. And he totally reciprocated all of it. And it was this awesome moment. Despite his history and the things that he's done, God is teaching me to see my brother, not for who he's been, but for who he is becoming. I'm learning to truly see him through God's eyes in a way that leads me to sit with him in whatever season or state that he's in. Because the Lord knows that when it's not my best day, I need people in my life that express that they're in my corner and to extend grace to me. God doesn't love me based off of my history, so why would I love my brother based off of his? I'll never be perfect at loving him. Relationships take work and they take sacrifice, and this one conversation is not going to change the entire trajectory of our relationship. But it was a step forward. I'm realizing that like Ruth, Love is never entitled. So, we pick up the story in chapter 2. Naomi and Ruth decide to go back to Bethlehem. On arrival, it says that the whole town is stirred. They're gossiping, right? The one guy that's like, she doesn't even go here. Um, <laughs> even though that joke's totally overused, right? <laughs> Why would anyone? Um, and so... Naomi was, she was embarrassed at how the Lord had apparently dealt with her. At one point, she asks someone to not even call her by her real name. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. Have you ever felt full of shame or defeated or just worn out, like God had given up on you because of the circumstances of life that you find yourself in? Later, we'll see how Naomi eventually shifts her mindset away from believing that the Lord dealt bitterly with her 
when she experiences his redemption. So to explain this next section of scripture, I looked into some commentaries. There's a Jewish concept in Ruth called the kinsman redeemer. Jewish scripture states that in the case of an Israelite man's death in which he fails to leave behind a son for his wife, the brother of the deceased man is commanded to take his widow or his sister-in-law as wife and both redeem the land and carry on the deceased father's name. The brother in this case would be called a kinsman redeemer. So basically, it is this person's duty or opportunity to bring hope into a hopeless situation, to redeem a very broken circumstance. They did this through marriage. Now today, that's not culturally relevant. So what would it look like in, two, in 2016, 2K16, <laughs> um, if it were our mission to restore life? Naomi knows that there are a couple of men that would fit this role here in Bethlehem. Ruth tells Naomi that she'll go to the fields and get some food for them. Back in those days, all the men would pick through the fields with their carts and their little donkeys, um, and all the women would follow behind and just pick up any of the scraps the men may have missed. The women couldn't even drink any of the water that the men could have, and oftentimes the men would take advantage of them. Ruth goes into the fields um, in hopes of finding food for her and Naomi. She happens to enter into the field of one of these kinsmen redeemers named Boaz. So we pick up the story in Ruth 2, 8 through 13, when Boaz first notices Ruth and pay attention to how he treats her. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. This is crazy because before I read this text, none of how Boaz treated Ruth should have happened. But Boaz extends kindness towards Ruth. He's told all the men not to lay a hand on her, He allows her to drink the water only the men could have. And he gives her more than just the scraps. The kindness that Ruth experienced, Naomi got to experience as well. Ruth came home with leftovers for her. It's the butterfly effect or the idea of paying it for it, right? You're kind to someone and then that person's kind to the next person, the next person, the next person. And there's power in that love. And that's what unity is all about. When Ruth returned home and Naomi saw and heard all that happened, she said, blessed be the man who took notice of you. How often do we just ignore people who aren't like us? We distance ourselves from people who speak different, look different, act different. Just as God is three in one and we are one with God, so we are called to oneness, this unity with each other. As the story continues through a long series of events that we don't have time to cover, but I encourage you all to read, um, Boaz redeems Naomi's family by marrying Ruth. Then he not only marries Ruth, but he has a child with Ruth 
who is the grandfather of King David, who is in the lineage of Jesus. That's my girl. So what is the point of all this? Ruth and Boaz represent people who unify and reconcile and love radically in the way that God unifies and reconciles and loves us radically. Married or not married, their relationship is an example of the unity that we're intended to experience in relationship with one another. So I'm going to go ahead and invite Becca back up. Thanks, Annie. Give it up! Um, um, thank you, Annie, for sharing your incredible insights uh, into the people and the story of Ruth. And as we continue on this evening, I just want to add to what Annie talked about. I want to add to the foundation um, that she set for us. And what I really want us to do is shift our attention to one of the statements that Ruth makes, one of the phrases that she makes. And Annie touched on it earlier when she was looking at the dialogue between Ruth and Naomi. Um, when Ruth is basically devoting her life to Naomi and say, or yeah, to Naomi and begging to let her come with her to Bethlehem. Um, but I just, this is the statement that she says that I can't get over. She says, your people shall be my people. Your people shall be my people. And this statement has captured more than just my attention. And what is, what's really going on in this moment is Ruth is saying, even though I'm a Moabite and you are a Jew, Naomi, I'm laying that aside. I'm laying that aside and I'm confessing that I want to be about your people. I want to immerse myself in your city. I want to get to know your culture. I want to get to know your community. And I want to know, and I want to get to know about your God. And I'm not just one foot in and one foot out. I'm two feet in. I'm all in. And I'm in this for the long haul. And when I think about this, all that I see is this beautiful image of unity. Ruth's choice to acknowledge their differences, but choose oneness, to proclaim oneness, it lands right here in my spirit because I know how much unity is on God's heart for our community and for the world. And I know this is on God's heart because we get a glimpse into Jesus' prayer life in the Gospel of John, and Jesus prays about this idea of oneness. He prays about this idea of, one, uh, of unity, and it's by no accident that we get to listen in on one of Jesus' prayers that he prays to God. So um, we're going to bring up John 17, verses 20 through 23. I found it in the message translation. And this is what, this is Jesus talking to uh, his father. He says, and this is him praying about us. You are prayed for by Jesus. That's pretty awesome. So I'm praying not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me because of them and their witness about me. The goal is for all of them to become one heart and mind, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you so they might be one heart and mind with us. Then the world might believe that you, in fact, sent me. The same glory you gave me, I gave them, so they'll be as unified and together as we are, I in them and you in me. Then they'll be mature in this oneness and give the godless world evidence that you've sent me and love them in the same way that you've loved me. I love this because Jesus is just saying that I want... I want the rest of the world to experience the same intimacy that Jesus has with the Father. He wants us to be as close to God as Jesus and God are one. He wants our hearts and he wants our minds to be that same oneness that Jesus has because he knows that salvation can come 
to our cities, to this neighborhood, to the nations, to the world, if we're of one body that is unified. And what's really sobering to think about as I was reading this was recognizing that our disunity in the church is actually a massive hindrance to people's salvation, to the harvest. Jesus says that that is what keeps people from salvation. And the enemy has been on mission to create division because he's so threatened by this power of unity, of us being together. Think about when unity is lost. Annie shared this story with me. She was visiting a friend's church in LA the other weekend, and this pastor was sharing a story that I think totally relates about what happened to him and his family. So imagine this pastor, well, he did it. The pastor um, decided that he was going to buy pizza for his family that night. His kids are stoked. Um, little kids just love pizza. And so him and his wife and the kids are... Um, sitting down to have some pizza. The guy just delivered it, and all of them are running into the kitchen, and the kids are throwing open the box because they're so hungry. And you know that moment where you go to reach for a piece of pizza, and it's so hot when you pick it up that you, like, drop sometimes? Well, they talked about how it was so hot, like, whoo! <laughs> um, and so the wife realized, okay, this is going to burn a kid's mouth if they try, you know, and eat it right now. So what she does is she starts pulling the slices away from the perfect circle that it was in. And as she was spreading out the pieces of pizza so they would start cooling off, the Lord spoke to that pastor in that moment. He said, this is what the enemy is trying to do to everyone. He wants to spread us all out so that we'll cool off. So we won't be as on fire for God together. And when Annie told me that story, I was, I was astounded. I was like, wow, that's real. That's what he does all the time. He's trying to spread us out. He's trying to break us up from relationships because he knows the oneness and the power of the oneness. God created me for relationships. He created you for a relationship. And together as a body of Christ, we can run after God unified with his love and we have the opportunity to love on others radically. Life happens, circumstances happen, and it reveals our human nature. And we end up saying things that we never meant to say, and we end up doing things that we really regret and we never wanted to do. We do things that take us out of the alignment of who God created us to be. And we see that when we interact with others too. We start out like Ruth and we're like, yeah, your people shall be my people. I'm about loving everybody. Everybody's my friend. And then often our follow-through doesn't always remain in the moments when we meet head-to-head. And what we're so quick to forget is that when we interact with people, any person you are interacting with is the bride to Christ. You are all the bride of Christ. And when we use words or we think thoughts that damage people or tear down others or judge others, what we're really doing is that we're hurting God's heart. We're hurting God's feelings because these people belong to him. They're his sons and they're his, they're his, they are his daughters. They're his creation. They're ma- his masterpiece. And just like Annie mentioned when she spoke about a brother, our ability to love people is challenged daily. But our invitation that we have is to ask the Holy Spirit inside of us to help us forgive, to help us reconcile, and help us unify relationships. 
And I didn't realize how much I needed help in this area until I came across this devotional in the fall and was just, you know, when you get blindsided by God, but he wants to tell you something. Um, but I am reading this. Basically, here's the quote. It says, God doesn't show us other people's inadequacies so that we can judge, but so that we can intercede. And that struck me to my core. And I knew it was the Lord. And he said, Becca, it's time to let go of judgment. And it's time to turn to prayer. So you can remember how I've looked past your actions and how I've shown you forgiveness and how I've chosen to love you. God wanted me to get caught up in the, in the inheritance that he gave me so that I could respond to everybody else that way. And I think God knows that in our flesh, we can't do it. Like we are not perfect. We are not gonna respond that way every time. It's not our human nature to always choose reconciliation. And this tension is real. I know that you're thinking about somebody right now that you're in that tension with. Maybe it's a relationship where you think it's absolutely unredeemable and there's no hope for us getting along. Maybe it's a relationship that you feel you're tempted to extend forgiveness, but to you it's just maybe a waste of time at this point. Or you've got bitterness still in your heart towards somebody and it's just... It would, it would take a lot of pride to swallow to really enter into that again. Possibly it's just the fear that's keeping you from stepping out in boldness and being the first one to acknowledge what's going on. But no matter what your specific circumstances look like, you're not alone and we're all challenged in this area daily. But we've got the presence of God living on the inside of us to help us choose reconciliation, to help us choose unity, and if you want to make that choice tonight to engage the Holy Spirit, to help you confess the areas that you've withheld forgiveness and the areas that you've withheld relationship for others, know that the point is not to get caught up in the shame and guilt that can, that can come into your mind right now. That is not the point. Jesus died on the cross so that our sins would no longer be remembered. So we, he's not wanting us to remember all this stuff that we, think of, that we could think about in that moment. The Hebrew word confession, if you look at it originally, it actually means, um, oh, confession, sorry, confession, I can't talk right now. Confession actually translates to what you're confessing to. And so often I think, and I've done this, I've spent so much time focusing on what I'm confessing from that I get stuck in the emotions where God's saying, I just want you to shift your focus because really what confession is, is coming into my presence and getting to proclaim what you're confessing back to. We're confessing back to unity when we get into the presence of the Lord. We're confessing back to oneness. We're confessing back to relationship. We're confessing seeing people the way that God does and seeing his people as his new creations in their new identity. And what I love about this is it's so countercultural to the way that our world is right now. The statement, your people shall be my people, screams the gospel. In terms of evangelism, it speaks to seekers something huge. And my vision and dream is for the end to be this place that is so welcoming to people that come through these doors. That even before you have to believe something, you belong here. That you're wanted here when you walk through the room, when you walk through the thresholds of this place, you are somebody that's gonna be sought after and pursued and people wanna get to know you and they wanna get to know your story. And when we leave this space and we go back to where we live, we're the same people that operate with that family mentality. That we're about bringing people in. We're about drawing people in. People that don't look like us, that are different from us. 
We're people that have our arms open wide for the world. Imagine, imagine this. Imagine if our Greek system started inviting international students over for meals all the time because they wanted to hear how hard it's been being in a new place. They want to invest and hear their stories and hear their struggles and what's going on in the world. Imagine if the Vision 16 community went and started hanging out in the elderly homes and was playing cards with them and was like, I want to know the wisdom that you have about life. I want to learn from you. Even though I'm young, I want to get to know you. I want to learn the life that you've had. Or maybe it's students from the dorm community that's saying, I want to invite in the streetless or the street youth that are homeless on the Ave. I want to share a meal with them. I want to get coffee with them daily. I want to know what's going on in their world, what they're passionate about, what they love about who they are. Imagine if we sat and shared stories with people who looked and acted nothing like us. And imagine if we stopped noticing our divisions and just loved endlessly on people in this neighborhood and chose to invite them into relationship. We don't do this to be good Christians. This is not to say I checked something off my list today and I did something because I'm a good father of God. We do this because God took us out of darkness and he brought us into the light. And he calls us to be the light to the world. And we go out into our neighborhood, we are a light that beams and radiates his love to people. And when people interact with you, they see the love of God. They meet you and they meet the father because he, they meet the love that's, that the father has for them. People are impacted and they come to find Jesus because of who you are in relationship to them. That's why we do it. Because people are worthy. People are the, God's masterpiece. And every son and daughter that you interact with is a son and daughter to the Lord. Imagine if this was happening every day spring quarter. These relationships were happening. These conversations were happening. These invitations were going on. I can only bet that people witnessing this outside of our community are going to start to notice this is going on. They'll notice when we start operating in love and in harmony because they won't be able to understand why we do this. Why? But it will preach the gospel. And it can lead to the salvation of some of our really close friends that we've been contending for. And as I've thought through the story of Ruth more and more, I come to see Ruth is the visionary for unity. She's the one who says, okay, I'm committing myself to immersing myself in Naomi's world. I'm going to be about her. I'm going to go and head on and move to Bethlehem, and I'm going to start walking out this whatever this looks like, this commitment to be unified together. But then Boaz comes on the scene. He just takes everything to this next level. He just sets this standard that, whoo, uh, it just has wrecked me as I've thought about what he's done. He he's, has this abundant generosity that, and heart for unity that I, I can't even comprehend some days. Boaz looks past the fact that Ruth is a foreigner he lays his status aside and he gives her not just the scraps, but he gives her the whole field to glean from. He gives her water to drink. He gives her protection. He gives her more than enough food to fill her stomach. Have you ever had a Boaz come and step into your life and change everything upside down? I've had a lot of Boazes come into my life, but the one true Boaz that's come into my life and interacted with me on that kind of level is my heavenly father. 
he came in and was like, Becca, listen, my daughter. From now on, you don't need to go waste your time looking anywhere else but to me to be filled, to be satisfied. I've got everything that you need right here. And Becca, you don't need to live in fear any longer because my hedge of protection is going with you and it covers you. And when you're thirsty in the dry seasons and you're thirsty for that living water that satisfies, I'm your well. I'm your well. And you can come and drink from me. And when you're hungry and your spirit needs to be fed, I'm not just gonna ration out my portions to you. I'm gonna fill you until you're full. I'm gonna fill you until you're full of my spirit. And because you're in relationship with me, you don't just get to pick up the scraps any longer because of what my son did for you. Because my son paid the price so that you can have life and life to the full and you can live in the abundancy of me. That barely scratches the surface of the father's love. It barely scratches the surface regarding how much God desires for you and for us to enter into this intimacy with him. Just like Jesus prayed for Jesus and the Father to be one. There's so much more for us to understand what it means for us and the Father to be one. God gave to Jesus an abundance and he gives us an abundance. And he models this for us so we can take on that nature of a Boaz and turn around and extend it and give it away to the people that we come into contact with. When we meet people who are committed to not just giving out rations and not just giving out portions, but bless people out of abundance, it creates an outpouring of love that redeems and restores people. And just like Annie mentioned, there can be this butterfly effect that we can't even understand the ramifications that come from it. I want us to go back and think about the phrase again. Your people shall be my people. Where are you at right now when you think about that? What does it provoke in your heart? And who do you find yourself being in a story? What person are you finding yourself most like? Are you a Ruth who's setting vision for unity and is on board to walk forward trying to figure it out? Are you a Boaz who's committed to looking past differences to lay aside your status and abundantly bring people into unity. And I also want to acknowledge that some of you might be sitting here in the room and going, Becca, I can't even imagine being that person right now. I'm not even in a place to think that way. I'm the one struggling. I'm the one hurt and bitter. And I've been the one that's just struggling in relationships right now. I'm the feeling like I'm Naomi who believes that God has dealt bitterly with me. There are more people in this neighborhood that are hurt and better from the absence of relationships than you can even fathom. From the absence of people reaching out to bring them into unity. And if that is you, I just feel like God is speaking to you tonight that his eyes are on you. His eyes are on you right now. And if you think you've come here tonight and you're blending in with the crowd or you're fading into the back of the room or you're in the corner by yourself, God is sitting right here, right next to you. He knows what's going on with his children and nothing is hidden from his sight. And you need to know that you are so worthy of relationships. You are so worthy of being brought into abundant life. 
He knows what's going on. And nothing is wrong about you because he said that you are wonderfully and perfectly made. Wonderfully and perfectly made. And whatever is going on, the loneliness that you're feeling, that will never be the final word because of Jesus. Life will be your final word. And he has so much more in store for you than you know right now. But I want you to believe me and know that there's hope for you. What if the inn rose up an army that was so committed to being people like Boaz and we were a place that commissioned people to go out into this community to seek after the Naomi's, to bring them back into reconciliation and back into wholeness? What if we went and met out, or what if we went and met people that looked nothing like you, that acted nothing like you, that had a completely different life than you? Look around this world. God loves diversity. He loves diversity. If you wanted you to be spending time with people that looked exactly like you, there would be people that looked exactly like you. But there's no other you on this planet that exists. He loves diversity. He knows that we all have different things um, that are strengths. And there's all these different things about the makeup of who we are that can interact and are special to other people. And we just got to look out for them. We just got to find them. And everybody, there's beauty. There's beauty and diversity. Annie and I joked around about our whole pants tonight that where God celebrates the unity on the top because we got different shirts on and unity on the bottom because that's a foundation. And that's what we, just want, we, that's what we want to preach here, the gospel. Or at the end, <laughs> I can't speak. <laughs> um, but that idea of celebrating diversity and being unified as a foundation is something that's, that's gone and been lost. And I can't let us ignore this pain in our neighborhood any longer. My prayer is for us to find Naomi's to come alongside and hopefully be a part of the redeeming process. Boaz was considered a redeemer in the end. That's what people named him as, the Redeemer. And that's the role that any of us can play on any moment of every day. Scripture wraps up the story of Ruth with Naomi seeing that God was restoring her life because she saw the gospel lived out in Boaz. And not only did her or did their family notice, but Naomi's community witnessed it. And the very end, they exclaimed around her, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who was more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And he talked about the butterfly effect. But this is just this beautiful image of Boaz abundantly loving Ruth and Naomi is impacted. And Naomi's community witnessed all of this as impacted because they're seeing the way that the father comes down and loves his children. And the Lord's glorified in that. And we all have a role in being reconcilers and redeemers. And before we end tonight, I'm going to give you all an opportunity to respond right now, to choose unity. If you guys have your cell phone, I want you to take it out and hold it up. I know you all have your cell phones. So take them all out and hold them up. Awesome. So this has never happened. Um, and now I guys, I want you to go in and I want you to open up a blank text message. Just open up your text messages. Don't read the ones that have been sent to you while you're here. Open up a blank text message. 
And for the next minute, we're going to spend time in silence. And I want you to ask God right now who you need to send a text message to. Or at least put their name in the text message. Who does God, who is he calling you to talk to right now? Where is there unforgiveness or bitterness in your heart? What broken relationship can you not leave behind? Who do you need to ask forgiveness from? So I'm going to take this next minute to just sit and think. And I really encourage you to take this faith step forward and to message somebody and begin the process and pray that the Lord is over it. And I know that God cares too much about unity to not be a part of this process with you. And I believe that when you step out in faith and begin the process of reconciliation that the Lord's with you and he's present and he's about it and he's about reconciling all situations and death is no longer the final word because Jesus' life is. Father God, thank you that you love us endlessly, God. Lord, I just pray over this time as we turn to you, we turn our gaze to you, God, and we we meet you. Thank you, God, that you meet us where we're at right now, Lord. And I just pray for you to protect this community from any shame and guilt that might be stirring right now, God, as they consider the opportunity to extend forgiveness and confess what's going on, God. I pray that their minds would shift away from what they're confessing from, but instead get excited about what they're confessing to. Thank you, Father, that we have nothing to fear because you're with us, Lord. And Lord, I just ask that you would continue to put names on our hearts tonight. Lead us to compassion, God. Give us hearts of forgiveness, Lord. Bring us and let us be conduits of reconciliation, God. And I just pray that you would bless this community with, with unity and that this would be a place marked by your radical love. Amen.